I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow, I'll... Just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 70 on Jack Vance's Star King, The Star King. I guess it depends on which version of the book you're working with. Um, I am Jeff, and with me today is our interplanetary dryad, Hoy. Howdy. And we're joined by our special guest, the Any Award-winning game designer behind Mothership, co-creator of Two Rooms in a Boom, and the co-founder of Tuesday Night Games, Sean McCoy. Hey, glad to be here. Hey, Sean. Happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us to discuss some uh, Jack Vance goodness. Uh, so before we start discussing the book, uh, Sean, tell us a little bit about how you got into gaming. I got into gaming as a little kid. I played the first role-playing game I ever played was a game called Legendary Heroes, which was a homebrew game created by Brian Pope, who now people know him as the creator of Mage Wars, and he's the president of Arcane Wonders. But he was a family friend when I was a kid, and he had made this very GURPS-esque D100, very, very, very fiddly role-playing game, and he hand-printed books and hand-bound them, and he gave them all out to me and his kids and, his, and, the, and our friends, and you could be, you know, like, you'd pick your race and your class, and there were dozens of each, um, there was like a martial arts book and a magic book and different schools of magic. It was super complicated, but as a kid, that's what you want because you don't get a lot of chances to play. So you want tons of books to, to pour over and, um, and, and go through to make the perfect character. So that's how I got into gaming, uh, from a very, very young age. And then I played third edition D and D, um, through a special licensing deal they had with Diablo two where they did like a Diablo two box set with like the D and D rules in it. And we played that and that got us into D and D indie gaming after that, then found my way to the OSR after being away from RPGs for a long time. Very cool. Now, had you encountered the idea of the appendix N at all prior to this, the appendix N I had heard about, uh, I think from Don Stroud, uh, after getting into the OSR and specifically after getting into DCC and him talking mm. about how DCC had sort of tried to go back to the roots. And I had never really, I had grown up, when I was growing up, there were tons of Forgotten Realms books and Battletech books and all these sort of licensed um, gaming fiction that I always thought was really cool. But I had no idea about this um, world of like fantasy that D&D had drawn from which I thought was really cool because before that I'd gotten into Michael Moorcock and Elric um, specifically through people writing about probably like Alan Moore, somebody writing about like anti-Tolkien fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so making that connection, like, Oh my gosh, like D and D, which had always seemed such like a Tolkien sort of thing now had this like weirder, more idiosyncratic roots was really, really appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And had you read any Vance before this? Uh, before the Star King? Yeah. Yes. I've read uh, all the Dying Earth stuff, Rialto and um, uh, Kugel. Um, I have a huge, huge, huge Vance collection. In fact, I have all the Demon Princes in like DAW paperbacks. Nice. um, Because I've been collecting them in anticipation of reading them, but I hadn't had the chance to until you were like, let's do Star King. And I was like, okay, perfect. Right. Awesome. (laughs) 
Now, Sean, which edition of the book are you working with? I have the Daw paperback, um, which has this beautiful cover of a guy in like a spacesuit and he's holding a gun. Um, beautiful painting. It was like a dollar seventy-five when it first came out. And then uh, in the back, there's like a shirtless guy in whitey tidies and like red boots <laughs> and a double-handed great sword. And then like one of those bubble helmets. Yeah. Um, but the painting is so good. Yeah. It sells it. Uh, but you're looking at it going like, man, sci-fi had so many sci-fi covers. Everything sort of converged in the last like 20 years to where there's a very, very specific line between what is sci-fi and what is fantasy. But at this period in time, it's like, I mean, we've got ray guns, we've got astronauts who look like cosmonauts, we've got a guy with, you know, a great sword, and they're on some sort of asteroid that's got volcanoes. It's just, we hadn't been to the moon yet. Maybe we have when this came out, but it's sort of, it's got that, anything could be out there, who knows? (laughs) 100%. Hoy, which version are you working with? I have the tour compilation of the first three, which is not as interesting graphically, although the typography is fine. (laughs) Um, and, um, this is from 1997 and, um, yeah, I think I, when I first read the series, I missed the Star the Star King for some reason. I think I started with the killing, the killing machine when I first read this series. So, and what do you, when do you have Jeff? I've got the 1964 first edition paperback, uh, the Star King. Uh, the cover is nowhere near as evocative or exciting, but it's graphically, it's kind of interesting. Uh, we've got a little spaceship on it. Uh, but yeah, nothing too, too exciting about this edition, but it is, it, it, it's nice. Right. Uh, False advertising though. The Star King. Right. <laughs> where I believe yours, Sean, is just Star King. Just Star King. And I, I want to say also, since uh, we, we had mentioned sort of briefly in the virtual book club, do look on the Wikipedia page for the Galaxy Magazine cover of which where the story was originally printed, because that is a crazy Ed M. Schuller cover with one of the main villains. And just, just like phenomenal. Just blue and red and all sorts of craziness. Yeah, it's but. really, really, really cool. Oh yeah. my goodness, that's insane looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a Dr. Seuss kind of horror <laughs> right. sort of thing. That's wild. <laughs> so before we jump on into the library, let's take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Salubrious. Salubrious. <laughs> and salubrious is found twice, once on page 14 and once on page 41 of my edition. And on page 14, it says, He was not wrong. The atmosphere proved salubrious. Allergen sensitive cultures tested negative. Microorganisms of air and soil quickly died upon contact with the standard antibiotic with which Treehalt now dosed himself. And on page 41, it says, The Rigel Concourse is Sir Julian's most noteworthy discovery. 26 magnificent planets, most of them not only habitable, but salubrious. (laughs) And salubrious means health-giving or healthful. There you go. A good word for these times. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's a classic Vance feeling word, though. That is like absolutely the kind of thing he would say. Yeah, <laughs> And it reminds me of when I was a kid, me and my friend Josh came across the word lugubrious, and we decided that we were going to use the word lugubrious as much as we could for a week before looking it up. <laughs> nice. Yeah, there you go. That's really an asking for per- for forgiveness, not permission move with words you don't know the definition of. So we'll just find out how much sense we made later. All right. <laughs> All right. So now we can head on into the library. Uh, Sean, what did you think about Star King? 
Uh, so I didn't finish it. I have to be upfront <laughs> and honest about that. But I'm a huge Vance fan, and this is classic Vance sort of all over. Um, mm-hmm. The My favorite parts, and the thing that I think Vance excels at the best, and this shows up in his fantasy work really, really clearly, is um, protracted negotiations with mundane shopkeepers. So, like, (laughs) all main characters of Vance novels are always getting into arguments with, like, mundane bureaucrats or innkeepers, and they're always about, like, it's like, they introduce themselves like, hey, I'd like a beer, and then from there, things get worse, where it's like, (laughs) okay, well, beer's five bucks, it's like, well, you know, that's a lot of currency for somebody like me, it's like, okay, well, it's still five bucks, it's like, perhaps you would trade, and they just get into these, like, weird... (laughs) social dances and, and, and negotiations. And I think it's like a world where I think Vance's worldview is a world where everything has to be negotiated for. Nobody Mm -hmm. just gives you something for nothing. And in the dying Mm -hmm. earth series, it makes a ton of sense. Like it's very, very post-apocalyptic. And so it's interesting because I'd never stepped into his science fiction before um, to see that sort of tradition carry on here where he's arguing with um, this guy to get the, the monitor code. Right. And um, they're having all these arguments about calling the cops, basically. He's just saying, like, I'm going to call the cops on you. And they just do this dance back and forth of like, well, I could double call the cops on you for threatening <laughs> to call the cops on me, which is illegal. And just like this further refining of terms. And that's my favorite fan stuff, because that feels very D&D to me is like squabbling over like, you know, well, four torches will be five gold, but it was three gold in the last town. and i I like that the currency unit is called the standard value unit in this right which represents the the worth of one day of unskilled labor right (laughs) yeah (laughs) so it's like oh well uh, it's five thousand svus it's like it's like okay so that's really putting a value on it like now it's like okay so five thousand svus that's five thousand days of somebody's work right like what does a dollar mean to us right (laughs) putting everything in man hours really changes things yeah yeah it really does no, and that's potentially an, an, another bit of interesting social comment or commentary in there as well, which I also felt like this book was full of. You know, each chapter starts off with this like fictional nonfiction that's like world building. That's kind of each each section is kind of telling us another little uh, another little bit about the world we're in. And I love how each one had its own kind of authorial voice. And in addition to it, some of them ended up having some really kind of interesting bits of social commentary in there. Like the whole bit about the police I found really fascinating. Uh, That's on page 33. That's one of my few highlights in the book is the stuff about the police. Yeah. If a police officer kills a civilian, it is a regrettable circumstance. If a civilian kills a police officer, all hell breaks loose. Uh, he says I the highlighted police that mentality exact line. cannot regard a human being <laughs> in terms of other than as an item or object to be processed as exp- exp- as expeditiously as possible. And another one is better a hundred unchecked criminals than the despotism of one unbridled police force. Whoa. Yeah, 1964, <laughs> that's very yeah. like Antifa feeling in a lot of ways. <laughs> Yeah, that is some pretty wild stuff there. And that's really way at the beginning. It's one of those first, it was like Dune where um, they're doing this kind of, um, what's it called in Dracula? An epistolary. It's got this like mm semi-epistolary format where you have these breaks of fiction uh, bookended by encyclopedic entries. Um, I think this is like lampooned a lot in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where Mm -hmm. it's sort of like the, the, 
tension in science fiction is always there's a lot of information about the world that the author wants to get across to you and how to do that gracefully. Yeah. And some people make that jump where they say, well, we're just going to do it gracefully, ungracefully. We're just going to hard in, do an info dump of some world building stuff and then get back to the fiction. Whereas some people try to pepper it throughout and it kind of makes the prose clunky because it's constantly going like, he got in the Magno lift whose servers operated this certain way. And they want to tell you how the elevator works, but they could have just said lift and moved on with their life. Right. Exactly. And, and Vance is really good at that. About in the fiction, the fiction moves really quickly. He doesn't spend a lot of time explaining things. But I thought these footnotes and asides were just wild uh, <laughs> in how much they it was like important for them to him to tell you, like, here's how things work here. Anyway, we're going to go there and get some gas. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, Sean, right. do you care if we talk about things that happen after no. the 40 percent mark? Yeah. Please do. Right. Right. Cool. Um, speaking uh, speaking of epigraphs, and I think you would point out something interesting. I think that um, Vance is. Um, very much a sort of uh, libertarian small L. I don't want to say big L libertarian because that has a lot of connotations in this day and age. But he's sort of that West or West Coast libertarian small L. So he's kind of certain things that it's not you know a matter of just pure left and right, right? But it's, it's, he's definitely into like individualism. He's into this idea of the frontier, uh, which is kind of like in the Frederick Jackson Turner's book about you know, the closing of the American frontier. Anti-authoritarian. Anti-authoritarian. And so one of the epigraphs is page six, it's page 58 in my edition, uh, chapter six. Adam had been in our book club. He had pointed out that the Jack Vance, we're not really sure whether Jack Vance is portraying his own views in these epigraphs all the time. But this one on chapter six is Jan Holbrook Vance, which his name is Jack Holbrook Vance. So, <laughs> and it's, so it's the epigraph for page six, and it's specifically about the frontier, and it's very much about this, this idea of people being beyond the frontier, having to rely on, on themselves, having having to create their own rules and not being bound to sort of the ideas of sort of the, the central government, the central sort of more civilized areas uh, that, that, you know, so that people are having to make their own laws and their own norms. Um, and, and that goes back to your point of constantly having to negotiate, right? Everything's in negotiation. Yeah, it, there's almost like a sort of implied, I don't want to say like laissez-faire capitalism in there, but this implication that like everything is barter right like there's no they have these things like the svu um but everything is for sale everything is negotiable um it's like this moral gray world where there really is no safety net for anyone oh absolutely i mean later in the book uh somebody is accusing somebody else of murder and they're like oh that happened in the outer world that's not murder (laughs) 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 Killing somebody out there does not qualify as murder. No, no, that's uh, you know a minor uh, you know difference of opinion. <laughs> but it is interesting seeing um, you know Jack Vance's own kind of views come through in the fiction because much much later in the story, did you ever meet a character named Pallas, uh, the, the kind of the love interest? No, 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 no. I was reading about them. Okay, so uh, she's the lo- love interest that comes later, and unsurprisingly she's kidnapped because that's what happens in everything um everything written before 1980 the the female love interest (laughs) is kidnapped um but what's interesting is um very much off screen she is uh raped and potentially tortured by this villain um it, it never says that explicitly but like you know that that's what happened and when he saves her he's like let's go off together uh and she's like why would you still want me after you after the things that have happened to me? 
And he's like, well, none of those things were your fault. Why would I care about that? And it's interesting because I feel like that kind of very specific take on sexual violence against women is not something that I think a lot of other authors of the era and appendix and authors specifically would have taken. Yeah, I think um, you're right. It's not that sort of like damaged goods kind of barbaric sort of um, what's the word? like possessive, like a woman only has value and like her purity sort of thing that you'll see in a ton of fantasy from the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it is really interesting. In Burroughs yeah. and farmer, you see like these, these, um, these like ideas that like, it's better for a woman to kill herself than to allow herself to get raped. Right. Right. That's really interesting because Vance is big on like, it's still a cliche, right? But that is his take on like the damsel in distress cliche, right? But the thing that I think makes him so endear- enduring, even over a lot of other appendix and authors, is his twists either in perspective, in terms mm-hmm. of like how he sees the world, or in like outcome. Like uh, you see this a lot with like Kugel. It's like Conan and some of these other people like are rapscallions, but there's like a code, and Kugel is pu- he's the He's completely amoral. He's completely, <laughs> yeah, amoral. completely he amoral. is a murder hope, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes it. But he's also enduring. not like evil in the sense no. that like he's not like a torturer who's like rev- relishing in the pain of others. He just like will do anything to survive and first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And to not and to thrive. Yeah. He he right. comes first always. And that again goes back to that sort of negotiation. Um, and the books never take his side. You're sort of like passively sitting back going like, okay, that's what that guy is. And you see a little bit of that with, um, is it Gerson? How you pronounce yeah. it? Um, Kurt Gerson. That's how, I, yeah. that's how I've been pronouncing yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Where this, I thought this was weird. The book does not, unless you know what the book is about going into it, it does not let on what it's really about for a while. <laughs> You're just kind of, it's got a very... I think of it as like the Count of Monte Cristo in space kind of feel Mm -hmm. um, to it. And that like, it's putting off the, you just call it following Gerson around for a while before you find out like what his motivations are and everything. And it's Vance's take on moralism, I think is really interesting too, because like he never takes a hard stance on morality and the stuff that he writes. He he tends to kind of look at morality as something that's very fluid and very individual and taking a look at Gerson, you know, he's supposedly our protagonist He's the hero of the story. He's off killing bad guys, which is what a good guy does. But also you kind of take a closer look and a deeper dive into Gerson. And he is essentially a character who was um, groomed by his grandfather to become a serial killer, basically. You know, his grandfather was like, I want you to lust for the taste of blood <laughs> over the bodies of women. Um, you know, getting vengeance against evil men needs to be the most important thing to you. And for some reason, Gerson, uh, he embraces that. And our, our the hero of the story is basically somebody who's just running around killing people just because he's always been told that's what he needs to do. Right. But the negotiation he has, and I, I love that, that concept that you brought forward because we're talking about sort of debate, but I think negotiation is the right word that Gerson has made with himself is that he would do all these things, but he's not going to actually enjoy it. He doesn't actually get any enjoyment out of killing, killing, you know, Maligate or any of the other villains. It's like, it's like, okay, this thing has to be done. You've done this bad thing. You know, there's no coming back from that. I'm going to kill you now. All right. (laughs) All right. But he doesn't actually get any, you know, he's not sadistic. He's not, you know, 
particularly looking for irony in the way that they, these characters are killed. He just wants to make sure he's got the right person, right? And, and if any of you are with that person, then you're also bad and you're going to get taken care of too, right? Um, but then he's negotiating. He's like, am I still a civilized person? Like, I have all these other things. Like, am I an incomplete person? I've been trained in this thing, but I've missed out all this other stuff. I spent 15 years on Earth in the Institute, which is like the, the sum of human knowledge, right? And I just learned enough to kill these people and not all this other stuff, right? Yeah, there's like, um, there's like a Hamlet amount of doubt in him. Um, but also, if you read like, this could very easily have been a pulp crime novel from the same time mm-hmm. period, if you're into like Richard Stark or any of these other guys, um, because even the layout is kind of like a kill bill sort of situation where it's like, here's the five people and we're going to go kill them. And these are the stories about how that happens. Like the, right. here's my shit list. Yeah, exactly. And just crossing names off that list, which I enjoy particularly about literature from that time period is the setups are really simple. Um, yeah. And, and you can just dive into them and see what they do with it. And it is about this competency porn, if, for lack of a better word, right? It's like he's very, right. you know, he's not superhuman. He's just that a little bit smarter, that much better of a planner than all the villains. And this is what I'm going to do, just like Stark, as you mentioned, in the in the um, the Richard Stark books. The, um, the Parker series, yeah. Parker series, right? He's just like, this is what I'm doing. I've got a code, got to do it, right? You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and he's somebody who is not really able to take in any information that contradicts uh, that contradicts his goals. Like, for example, when he goes and he meets up with Parseval in kind of a flashback and he goes to kill this guy, the guy's like, yeah, man, I used to be real fucking evil, but like, I'm a good guy now. And Gerson's, he's like, sorry, dude, you were bad. I'm killing you. And like, that was basically it for, for Gerson. Like, he wasn't interested in hearing any of it. And we don't know, like, maybe what this guy is saying is true. Maybe he was living a good life now, or maybe he's just a bad guy making up more excuses we don't know, and we spend as much time wondering if it's true as Gerson does before he kills him. <laughs> Man. Yeah, it's got like a Dexter. This would make a great series um, in that like the setup is simple, but you get to learn about these backstories of these other characters. Did they do it? Did they not? Um, and that's the kind of thing that like I like to watch mm-hmm. um, is all the plays and the different takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of, uh, I think... Vance does a really great job of um, exploring some psychological complexity with a lot of these characters. One character who you also didn't get a chance to meet yet is a character by the name of Robin Rampold. And Robin Rampold is somebody who um, at one point was definitely a bad dude himself. Um, Now, did you meet Beauty Desk? Of course you did. He's Mm -hmm. he's right in the beginning. Um, And actually, real quick, I would love to um, read the description of Beauty Desk because this paragraph is so insanely cool. So to start off with Beauty Dask, Dask was about six feet tall. His torso was a tube, the same gauge from knee to shoulder. His arms were thin and long, terminating in long and great bony wrists, enormous hands. His head was also tall and round with a ruff of red hair and a chin seeming almost to rest on the clavicle. Dask had stained his neck and face bright red, excepting only his cheeks, which were balls of bright chalk blue, like a pair of mildewed oranges. At some stage of his career, his nose had been cleft into a pair of cartilaginous prongs, and his eyelids had been cut away. To moisten his corneas, he wore two nozzles connected to a tank of fluid, which every few seconds discharged a film of mist into his eyes. There was also a pair of shutters, now raised, 
which could be lowered to cover his eyes from the light, and which were painted to represent staring white and blue eyes similar to Daska's own. This is the galaxy cover. <laughs> exactly. That's fucking cover. cool. Yeah, that's yeah. the galaxy cover. But that dude kidnapped this guy named Robin Rampold. And Robin Rampold is the reason why Dask doesn't have eyelids. Um, this is a dude who mutilated and maimed Dask in his past. So Dask has captured, kidnapped him, and for 17 years has kept him in a cage and on his like little secret planet where he's been torturing him for 17 years. And when we finally like meet Robin Rampold and we rescue him, he can't stop thinking about Dask and needs to be with Dask constantly. And whether or not he's going to be taking care of Dask for the rest of his life or torturing him himself, it doesn't matter. But because Dask has been the center of his life for 17 years, he can't envision a world where he's no longer the center of his world. This Is, is this pre-Stockholm Syndrome as like a term? I think it is. I, I think know. Stockholm Syndrome was... Uh... 70s i think that bank robbery was in the early 70s but yes he's 73 got yeah this yeah. is like predates that by like 10 years yeah yeah, yeah. Man. like really cool like i don't know he, he's just he's so good at like taking these like really kind of interesting insights into the human experience and turning them into just like interesting characters or interesting cultures yeah he'll take somebody um and their complexity and sort of i don't want to say make a monster out of them but it's like people are caricatures of their belief set. They're like a walking embodiment of like um, who they are. It's so funny learning that that's what the galaxy cover is because like this definitely predates concept art as like a serious <laughs> profession and they're pulps. Like these things are done under duress. Um, but when I pictured that, I pictured a very, very cool, but disturbing version of the face with like these little shutters and these crude paintings on them almost like a prison tattoo you know but uh, on the galaxy <laughs> cover it's like the fake eyes you might wear in class to trick your teacher into like thinking you're awake it's got a very again dr seuss like but his it's to a t accurate his yeah. nose is cut in two like uh he's got nozzles he's got blue orbs for cheeks i mean that's wild that they yeah thought about it that much yeah i think there was something about the and maybe it's just the i don't know if the, what the pace of production is like now compared to then but i think it's clear that uh, either the art directors were much more forthcoming or the, the the artists actually read the stories right whereas now i think it's more like okay give me a pose like this three spaceship flying over and uh the heroine uh you know, Photoshop her, but don't Photoshop her too much, you know, right? right? Sure. Or you look at the cover of the Tales from the Dying Earth collection that's currently available, and it's like, it's just it's just a hard sci-fi city planet thing. And I'm like, what does this have to do with anything? Right, right. And I think that's, yeah, that there is, a, I do miss that sort of representational, sort of directly representational. Some of it's a little bit more abstract. I, I, in theory, I guess that the uh, the cover that you have, the Gino D'Achille cover, is like that scene on the, on like the dwarf red star, but it's, you know, again, it's so weird. Just like tidy whities you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the daw paperbacks. I've got like the Elric ones. They're all just so gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Um, and sort of of their time. Uh, right. and so that's for me, appendix and collecting, even if I ask for them for like Christmas or stuff, I have to be very specific because right. I'm like, no, my fetish is, I want the, like the pulpiest cool cover right. of it. I can't just have like, some omnibus with like all the stories in it that won't do anything for me. I need to <laughs> pretend like I'm picking this up in the sixties off of like a pharmacy rack or whatever. A hundred percent. Jeff did me a lot of harm to my collection. Cause I had a lot of these books in ebook and I went back and picked them up in paperback. anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, Sean, is there a character from this story that uh, that you were just really attracted to or fascinated by? Yeah. So, uh, Luco T. Halt, who you meet at the very, very beginning, is really interesting to me. One, because they have they do this social dance again, right? Um, they do this like back and forth, feeling out whether they can trust each other. Lugo thinks that Gerson is maybe out to get him or maybe the person he's supposed to meet or maybe an agent of Maligate, the bad guy. And so they do this sort of round and round, like pretending not to be interested in each other's stories, but asking each other, to keep talking like, um, but they both want to get this information across to each other. Gerson wants to find out, like, does he have connections to Maligate? It's a very like spy thriller sort of moment. Um, and the whole book sort of starts off with, like a classic D and D setup where it's like, you're in a tavern and mm-hmm. this guy comes down and he's like, let me tell you about my problems. But he has this whole backstory about like falling from grace and being an, I think an academic uh, and then becoming what's called a locator, which like when an influenced mothership writing that I was doing, where basically his whole job is to find beautiful planets um, and it like tag them and then sell their locations to, um, you know, the rich and powerful. Right. Um, and it never occurred to me, there's a lot of things Vance does in sci-fi that are like, okay, that's weird. Like, why did you think that would matter in the future? Kind of like how in like Asimov stuff, like you'll or Heinlein stuff, he's like, everybody's getting receipts for things. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, all right, I guess that's a big deal in the future. Um, but locators, one of those things that I thought in even a world like star Wars, like the ubiquity of colonizing planets is so huge of course there'd be a job of like tracking down and finding interesting ones mm-hmm. and then uh the bad guys uh dask was super interesting particularly because no it's not dask it's um tristano tristano the earth man they have this like passive they're kind of like mookie bad guys from a movie where like they keep coming um but they have this sort of passing interest in gerson and they're not really sure where he is um, like how big a threat he is to them. Right. That's classic, like uh, big combo. One of those film noirs that, that, that second, as you say, the MOOC or the second tier bad guy, who's right. like Scoping them out or like, um, like one of the gunmen in like a, in like a Clint, e- Clint Eastwood spaghetti Western, like, okay, is he faster than me or am I faster than him? Right. And it definitely has that vibe there. And um, just as much as you were talking about sort of mid, mid 20th century film noir, I think it also is mid 20th century Western, right. Post, like the romantic Western post like John Ford. So now towards the more sort of cynical Westerns of like, um, you know, the fifties and sixties, that's that sort of vibe to it as well. That's maybe the thing that is most interesting to me about appendix N is um, they're all influencing, influencing each other. So you've got like cosmic horror and the black mask and the pulps and the Westerns. And it's all sort of blending in to where like D and D really is a lot like a Western. Um, and now a lot of the influence, I'm not like dogging on fantasy now, um, but if you grew up playing D&D in like the 90s and aughts or whatever, likely your biggest influences are like Harry Potter, Star Wars, um, Return of the King, the Lord of the Rings, that kind of stuff. And so we're watching sort of like a play of a play of a play. Um, mm-hmm. And there's not as much like Western or crime or nor influence, which is fine. Um, but to me, I love seeing that in the old pulp stuff where it's like, oh, this is a fantasy story with a Western plot, or this is a crime story with the sci-fi elements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And many people have said that first edition or original D&D is definitely could not have been produced in Europe. It's not, it's, it's really a Western with fantasy medieval trappings, mm-hmm. right? Cause it's about this, 
open frontier, claiming land, you know, for all the both the positive and the negative aspects of that. You know, it's it's popular to talk to talk about now about like decolonizing games. And that's definitely a, a deep conversation to be had, right? But it's sort of in the DNA of D&D. Like we, we have these unconquered areas, we have this keep on the borderlands, and we're going to mount expeditions out from there and, and sort of slowly re-civilize these areas. But we're going to be bad men who are working on the, on the for the good by, by right. civilizing these areas. We're going to be white hats. Yeah. And right. that is still in this Vance stuff, right? Like we're still right. in the beyond and the frontier and like we're sort of away from law and it's like points of light, if you use that terminology a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, this Vance sci-fi stuff still feels very, very, very much in that uh, canon for that reason. So with what you read of the Star King, do you feel like uh, Mothership would be a fit for this kind of style of science fiction? Or do you feel like Mothership is really better suited for something else? So what we tell people is like, I call Mothership blue collar terminal punk. Um, I try to tell you like, pretend you're in the 80s, it's like RoboCop, Terminator, you know, um, alien aliens. Like I want to keep the tech level low, not the implications. Like you can have faster than light travel, but you wouldn't have like an iPhone, right? Um, you'd have like big clunky mechanical keyboards. Some of this is a gameplay thing. I think people are, are a lot better for the most part at thinking of technology in an old way, looking back than imagining future technology. We can imagine like going fast, but if you start getting into all these like screens and AI and group think, uploading your consciousness stuff, it gets a lot harder to sort of affect in gameplay. Um, the things that I, so this is definitely more in the space opera realm, but the things that influence me from mothership from reading this are, um, that like law is terrifying and sparse. Like it's very powerful, but it's more like a paramilitary organization than it is like a protect and serve kind of like Japanese, you know, we're here to help people get home <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> it's more like, you know, kill teams and strike groups and like they come down hard and fast. And you just kind of want to avoid them altogether. And some other ships going to have like customs inspections and all that sort of stuff and private military companies acting as police forces. Um, that's that's very mothershipy. And this locator thing was, was super interesting. The presence of these criminal crime syndicates. But we don't do a lot of like intelligent alien races. That was something we haven't mm-hmm. talked about at all was the whole concept of the star King is like an alien that can take the form of uh, its enemies sort of, mm-hmm. but only after a few generations. And they drop that in pretty early on where they're like, okay, there's aliens, but they look like humans. Anyway, moving on. Right. Um, right. It wasn't yeah. like is it parallel or... evolution. Not clear. You know, is it, you know, is it right. just a uh, convergent? It's a really interesting alien race, right? Because it, in, in a sense, Adam Alligate is this like, overarching big bad in the story, but he's not even the most malicious person. Anything he does is purely sort of out of his biological or evolutionary drive for dominance and, and survival, right? Whereas the uh, the human villains are truly villainous. Right, yeah. Man is always the bad guy. Right. So if you were looking to do kind of a science fiction game that really felt like the the what you've experienced so far of the Demon Princes, um, if you weren't going to use Mothership, do you feel like what would be a better fit for something like this? Would it be Traveler? Would it be uh, Sonic Spells and Solar Solar Blades and Sonic Spells? Uh, would it be Stars Without Number? Is, is there one that you feel like might be a good fit for this? People are, I think Traveler and Stars Without Number are the easy ones to pick. Um, mm-hmm. But I really like this new role-playing game called Star Dogs. 
Um, okay. By uh, this guy, Michael Rashton, uh, Gorg Zoo Games, I think it's called. It's got a little bit more of like the Star Wars pulpy kind of feel to it. It's, it's real new. Um, super, super indie. Um, the, the easy answer is you can always do this with Stars Without Number. But the big thing, I'm not shitting on Stars Without Number Traveler. These are like towering giant games in the industry. Um, but in being so big, in being so many things to so many people, they lose a little bit of like the grit that you would want to have from a Vance story. Um, mm-hmm. which has kind of like an underbelly. I know Stars with the Number has like a presumed like post-apocalyptic kind of thing. And um, Traveler has like their third Imperium setting. But you kind of want something that has not a Firefly feel, but like a Western feel. You know, you would almost mm-hmm. do better using like an old Avalon Hills gunslinger game or, um, you know, Boot Hill and converting that <laughs> into the setting um, because <laughs> of that sort of frontier-like approach. Everything feels grimy and like hot when i read these sure and i think um you know it's it's not super it's he it's sort of hand wavy him right so this is really more of um a a point crawl than a hex crawl right he goes this plan he goes this plan but we're not worried about what's in between right so yeah you almost don't need a specifically science fiction um game engine right right to play this game because right? it's really about the interactions they're having. You, you want those trappings, but you don't necessarily need a gaming. So this could easily be a game that has relied heavily on negotiation, like uh, one of the various like uh, PBTA games or um, Fate or something like that. You know, something that has that, again, that give and take, right? Yeah. And especially if the game master is playing the role of the villains. Yeah, or even like, a, like the burning wheel system that's got that really kind of uh, very involved social, um, social mechanic. No, absolutely. It seems like you want to have a lot of RP or social maneuvers and then combat is quick and deadly. And it's an investigation book, too. Like we're watching a guy. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because if you've ever written like fiction and you're coming up with something for your protagonist to do and you 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 think like, okay, they should do this. And then you immediately go, well, that's stupid because then this person would just do this. And you sort of play out a couple moves and you try to figure out what would be the smart move for your protagonist to make if you're writing this like competency porn, like Hoy said. Um but this book does that. You constantly see Gerson say, like, I'll do this. But Maligate would think of that. So I'll do this. And he'll do that two or three times down the road and then be like, ah, okay, so I'll do this. That That is truly unpredictable. Um, and so it really feels like an investigation game in that mindset that you're constantly trying to predict what the bad guy's going to do and then locate them. Right. So, Sean, uh, I mean, one of the things that you're known for is information design as a graphic designer and as a game designer, right? So could you see, like, this there is a procedural element to this book, right? So this may almost be in your wheelhouse in certain ways, right? This this book, it's like okay, here's going to this, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, but where do we create those weird forks, like you just mentioned, that like where the unpredictable comes in, completely unpredictable comes in? Is that dice or is that something that can I be- think about that a lot, particularly in investigations and mysteries, um, because usually what they do is they just give you all the information and they say like figure it out. Um, whereas I want to, like in my spare time, I work on like a way to design NPC encounters like a dungeon, not to where you move from room to room, but where it says like, Hey, if you get tough with this person, this is what they'll give you. If you just ask, talk to this person normally, this is what they'll give you. Um, if you leave or come back, this is what, how they react. Uh, because I feel like in a real investigation, you need to be able to backtrack, go back, say, Hey, we just found this thing out now that we didn't know last time. Now that you're back, you could say, okay, if presented with this evidence, they'll give you this more information. 
And uh, in something like this, you would want to have a lot of NPCs with different information and a lot of points that you could visit where you'd say, hey, like the monitor, he has all this trouble getting the key to unlock this monitor to find out like the locations of stuff. And you'd want to have like, hey, you can handle that here, 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 and here. You can go here and, you know, steal it. You can go here and bribe somebody for it, et cetera. Um, there's definitely, this definitely feels like a pulp mystery in that way. You've got the guy who's like getting beat up, walking around, asking a bunch of, you know, questions he shouldn't be asking. Now, one of my favorite things about going through and reading these appendix and novels are seeing that or are theorizing about the things that may have inspired Gary Gygax directly. And one of the things that I found interesting is I know that Jack Vance was Gary Gygax's favorite author. And on page 15, it says uh, they're talking about the dryads. Were they intelligent? Treehalt never answered the question to his own satisfaction. They were wise, certainly. He made this particular distinction. So here we have huh. <laughs> uh, Gary Gygax's favorite author saying very, very explicitly, intelligence and wisdom are two different things. That's interesting. <laughs> Connection? Maybe, maybe not. It's one of those things where like maybe Gary Gygax got that directly from there. Maybe this influenced him and in his thinking in some way that he didn't really realize at all. Or maybe it has nothing to do with anything. But I thought that was interesting. And then also on page 62, they mentioned the still unexplored wilderness of psionics. <laughs> they actually say the word psionics. So those were two things that I thought were kind of interesting that I, I think um, are very Gygax, are very much in the wheelhouse of Gygax's interests. Yeah, it's a book one of a series. Like he's almost guaranteed to have read it. Um Man, that's wild. Vance, the more I feel like the more you read Vance, the more you really do learn about D&D in that particular way, more than a lot mm -hmm. of other authors, um, mm -hmm. especially Gygaxi and D&D. Yes. Yeah. Very, very, very particularly. So, man, that's wild. Now, was there anything while you were reading it that leapt off the page to you as like, oh, yeah, this is very D&D. I think the biggest things are like, OK, so the setup is he's like on this planet smade's planet right and it's sure like, they meet in a tavern he they meet in a tavern <laughs> like and, and it's a sci-fi book and i'm going like okay all right this is like the least sci-fi thing i could possibly think of but it's a huge like the, the tavern owner gets mad throws them out yeah. being violent like um that was right. super dnd to me right the tavern owner is secretly a ninth level fighter right you think he's right. a tavern <laughs> right yeah <laughs> Also, something that happens later that you didn't see, but Hoy, I loved the moment where the poisoner, uh, when when Gerson kills the poisoner, uh, but then he starts looting his body and he's going <laughs> through and like finding all the cool poisons and all the cool like poison delivery contraptions and like figuring out which things he wants to take and which things he doesn't. Right, right. <laughs> Man, yeah, so, that was very D and D to me. Super pragmatic. Um, I like the um, I like the element of like people who don't necessarily have any business being together, being together, right? And that's classic crime film, but that's also a classic D&D party where you have a paladin and an assassin in the same party. Like, how is that possible? Like, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, here we have... <laughs> it just you know, is. Yeah, just, yeah, <laughs> just go with it, Don't right? think about it too hard. <laughs> right, and then the story sort of reinvents itself it afterwards. But I guess an interesting thing, again, sort of circling back to your work, Sean, is that um, for better or for worse, at the moment, you're known for very focused designs, right? And obviously... D&D was a very open, generalized design, even though it had a very specific sort of uh, vibe to, to begin with. Is there like a broader, like, would you want to attempt a broader design 
you know, uh, at some point, or do you feel like that's not in your wheelhouse? That's not really trying to capture when, when you're in your work. So, um, currently for mothership, the next big project we're doing is we're going to kickstart a boxed set, um, which is like my love letter to like the little black books, um, and the little brown books for traveler and, and, uh, D D 74. Um, and it'll be a player survival guide and a warden's operations manual. And then an aliens, and other horror, like three little zines. And they'll go in, nice. um, a box of some dice and that sort of thing. Um, and the intent isn't to broaden the design, but it is to give you a lot more tools. So we're doing like, um, the sort of system generation and sector generation. And, and we're, re- we're revisiting like how we do ship design. Um, but one of the things our playtesters and other developers have done really good at is, um, pointing their finger back to horror um, which is like where our wheelhouse is because it's very easy to sort of chase the like stars without number and traveler dragon and do things that they already do really well, but try to do them like in your own way. And both those games do incredible planetary and sector and system generation. Um, and uh, Kevin Crawford's always of course, really good at like um, the sandbox tools. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so trying to make sure that like we bend all these things um back to like our particular brain of horror. Like we had this huge faction system with like faction turns and stats for factions and like ways to generate them. Um, and then, you know, I put it in a box for three months and revisited it and I was going over it with in Usum, one of our playtesters, And we were like, this just isn't very mothershipy. This is like very like fiddly. Really. There should be like the company and that's it. It's right. like there might be like subsidiaries that are religious groups and governments and all those other things, but everything comes back to a world controlled by corporations. Um, and so reframing our mindset of going, okay, we did a thing, you know, we have all these pages of like faction generation and, and turns and stuff and bringing it back to what is core mothership? Mm-hmm. Where's the horror in this first? It's still sci-fi. Um, but remembering that like the thing that people are going to remember is that it's a horror sci-fi game. So um, we want to do broader probably is a is a good word for it where we want to allow you to play a research campaign or a military campaign or those kinds of things and define those like little genres for us um and there are additional rules and and reshaping things that we want to do combat's getting a revamp that sort of thing but yeah i like a lot of different kinds of games um and so like i would love i'm i haven't got to play burning wheel very much um, and people swear by it. And so that's like one of those games where I think it did a really fantastic job finding its audience and like making mm-hmm. them fall in love yeah. with the game. Um, and I think that's a point in its favor. So yeah, I would love to do, um, Harn master role master, like super detailed fiddly game and get it right. Um, I don't have any hate for those games by any means. Um, does that make sense? Sure. sure. It does. And I've got a question building on this. So, you know, I've played a bunch of mothership. I've run a bunch of mothership. And when you do Mothership one-shots, 100% of the time, you want to have heavy horror components to it. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing a Mothership campaign, and last night I also played in the uh, the new Alien RPG for the first time as well, and this is a thing I was wondering about that system as well. Um, in your vision of like the Alien RPG or the or Mothership, when you're doing a campaign, at that point, 
each adventure, what percentage should horror be a heavy component to those? Is it still closer to 100? Or are you trying to like dial it back a bit so that when it happens, it's more impactful? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's one of the things that we get feedback about a lot is people say like, oh, Mothership's really for one shots. It's just so deadly and and, and crazy. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing we're trying to address with the Warden's Operations Manual um, is the brass ring of role-playing game design to me is campaign play sort of like um the brass ring of like card game design is making a collectible card game like if you can do that and nail it you've really like gone to that awesome place that's not to say anybody can make a game that's a compelling one shot it's just that like games that people return to week after week year after year with the same people are to me a very very beautiful and unique thing about role-playing games so one of the big things that we're trying to round out in like the product line is saying the horror needs to happen. It needs to get in the way of things you want to do. It's not something you do. Now you can play like a ghost hunters game for sure. If you want to, or like we call it like a troubleshooter game where the corporation says like this thing happened, go find out why. Um, And you go down and, and sort of investigate like why everybody's dead at this research facility. And that's like a Delta green sort of investigator frame. But what you need to have is like goals. Like, are you, asteroid miners are you traders or whatever and the horror is encroaching on you there and we're trying to talk a lot of sort of about like varying up what horror means in your campaign like sometimes it's a slasher and sometimes it's a monster and sometimes it's a ghost um but you sort of need to have these peaks and valleys of like it can't always be aliens and it can't always be coming after you all the time i mean sometimes just making that damn paycheck and getting off planet right right yeah (laughs) You need to have stuff that you can do. And a lot of players right now are not a lot, but I've seen some people do um, they're calling it like low stakes, low supernatural horror where like it's like rescuing people from a downed vessel or whatever. Um, So there's still stress and it's still like high stakes, but it's not like there's an alien in there and you're going to TPK if you walk in. Um, And so we're trying to find that balance. One of it is like keeping stress, keeping, um, health a short-term problem and stress a long-term problem to where like Mm -hmm. stress builds up very very slowly over sessions but your health can fluctuate a lot within one session um Mm -hmm. and balancing those sort of health pools against each other that's great right and i think that's a balance Uh, i mean this issue is one that dcc gets tagged with sometimes too it's been known as the one shot you know tpk game as well too right and um but it's not because it's got levels. So clearly, you're meant to progress. So some kind of progression, whether or not it's literally class and level, or it's just like, oh, I've got more credits now, so I have a little bit more freedom of action because now I can fuel my ship and not just do company jobs, right? I can do some other kind of job if I have to, which 100%. is travelers, you know, bread and butter. Yeah, and I strongly disagree with the um, with the assertion that Dungeon Crawl Classics or Mothership are only good for for one shots. I just think that uh, what, what you're talking about, Sean, the, the real question with the Mothership campaign is, you know, how do you incorporate the horror on a regular basis or do you? And I think you answered that really well. Yeah. Um, I do have one other question for you. So um, near the end of the book, we end up uh, dealing with um, with our Galaxy, Galaxy Magazine cover villain. And, you know, we've discovered that, like, you know, he's committed, you know, horrible tortures He's raped the this this main character. Um, so there, there's rape, there's torture. Um, he's um, he's got slaves on other planets and things. Oh, actually, no, that's Malagate, but whatever. 
But the way Jack Vance does it is it all happens off screen. So at no point does it feel like we are experiencing really explicit sexual violence. Um, but it is something that's happening off screen with this character. Now, in a mothership campaign or in any kind of a science fiction campaign, do you think there's space to have a villain who's doing these horrific things off screen or is even off screen too much in your opinion? What do you mean by too much? You mean like in terms of like in a game? In a game, yeah. Having a villain who's um, committing rape and torture off screen. So yes, safety tools have become just like such an important part of the discussion of role-playing games, um, particularly because I think playing in public with strangers has become um, like a bigger and bigger part of our hobby, which is great. Um, In a horror game, um, I think you get the best results when you can go to places that you feel uncomfortable or you feel safe being uncomfortable in. Um, with the people who are around you, like uh, like a roller coaster, right? You feel very, you know, some people feel safe in them if you like roller coasters and you're okay with the level of discomfort you have, right? And uh, there are places that are unsafe places of discomfort for people. Um, so like one, just like having a very open discussion. I'm playing more games with, like I didn't not, I didn't really believe in safety tools for a long time. I didn't think they were bad. I was just like, well, I don't see the point. I play with all my friends and everybody seems to know what's going on. And then I started running more public games and, 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 uh, games for strangers, um, to sort of market and play to smothership. And I started thinking, you know, like I need to be very upfront with like places we are going to go and places we aren't going to go, um, in this game. And so saying like, Hey, we're not going to have any sexually violent content, um, of any sort of kind. We're not going to do this kind of anything that has to do with kids. You know, we're not going to do that. We are going to have, you know, violence against people's bodies and infections and like um, this sort of stuff might happen off screen. People talk about lines and veils, basically like hard and soft lines in the sand. Um, And I think all of that, particularly in a horror game, is super important to do and is going to make you have like a better time anyway. Uh, And I think there is room for that in a game. I don't think there's like a hard stop on any sort of content. It just really depends on what you and your group are comfortable with. And if you guys Mm -hmm. can talk about that stuff, like in our monster book, we're again, trying to do like our own take on like what a monster book is. And for mothership, that means not an encyclopedia of knowable things, but rather a sketch of unknowable things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's where the horror is at for us. So we want more like rumors and descriptions that are not like it's a five foot tall, like gray skinned alien. We want to say like it's child sized and has skin that looks like a dolphin's. Um, so we want to use language that the warden could use to describe it. But one of the bad guys we're putting in there is called a sea level. And if you like are a business jargon person, you just know that that yeah. means like CEO, CCO, CTO, <laughs> um, and listing them as like a villain of like these people are untouchable. Um, they have vast resources at their command uh, and they're motivated by profit not like as a political statement, but as like a statement in the way the world of mothership works, it's controlled by corporations and like a sea level person is just as bad as some random xenomorph that you might run into. So I think there is room for that kind of play. I just think you sort of have to be upfront that that's something you want to talk about and uh, see right. what your players think. And also real quick, I want to just say um, there's something on page 86, which I don't think you made it to yet. That really ties into what you just said there. And it says, Space Drive has given a terrible weapon to any megalomaniacs who happen to occur in our midst. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So do you feel that the there are specific tools that are coming up in your new edition um, or expanded edition of uh, Mothership that 
specific tools that you want to hard code in, or do you want to refer to the sort of general best practices that are happening out there right now at the moment? So yeah, I'm not an expert on safety tools, but I've talked to a lot of um, friends of mine, mostly in like the indie gaming scenes, um, who use them a lot and who know sort of like what the common best practices are, the current best practices are. And so we'll refer to some of those. The ones that I think are the best, the like the mothership way to talk about it is because we don't want it to feel like like a cover your ass move. Um, I talked to this with somebody who's like big into safety tools for a while about like what's the mothership way to do it. And the first and foremost thing is going to be like your players are humans that have their own backgrounds, their own biases and prejudices and trauma and like history that you may not be aware of. And this is just so that we can have fun. Um, and so keep it, talking about safety tools being an open conversation and being something that evolve as time goes on that you should be human mm-hmm. and listen to your players. Well, Sean, this is great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Is there any kind of last thing that you really wanted to share with our audience before we wrap this up? We have a new module called Gradient Descent that should be coming out in a few months here. It deals with like evil AI and the sort of how sort of spectrum. Um, and then after that, look forward to the Mothership box set in our chat here. I dropped a little preview image of um, a piece of art that we're working on. You guys can check out. Um, but we're really pretty excited about where we're going to go. Um, and there's oh, a lot more to so come. Oh, that's so cool. That's really nice. Oh, that is really cool. Cool. All right, cool. And how can folks find you online? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Sean McCoy. That's S-E-A-N-M-C-C-O-Y. Or follow Tuesday Night Games at Play TKG. And I really want to recommend uh, your blog too, uh, Failure Tolerated, because I think there's a lot of very interesting game design philosophy and ideas that are being worked through. There, Thank you. I think it's really fascinating. So, And Hoy, how can folks find us? All right. Uh, if you want to drop us a note, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n, and we're on Facebook and MeWe as well. Um, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? You can show us your support over at patreon.com slash appendix and book club. And before this episode, we got to sit down with Adam Stiers and chat with him about the Star King. So that was fun having him on. Uh, as a patron, you were able to chat with us before the show about the book we're, we're, we're discussing that day. Uh, I'd like to give a quick shout out to a handful of our patrons. Thank you to Adam Alexander, Andrew Satan, Andrew Sternick, Andy Action, Angus, Christopher Murray, Daniel Bishop, Jared Logan, Mason Coffey, and Robbie Fioto. Thank you so much for your support. Yes, thank you. And Sean, thanks for being on the show, man. Oh, it's bucket list stuff. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's total pleasure. Total pleasure. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.